Everybody feeling good? I'm feeling good. I've been looking for this weekend, like, like since like August, you know, because I, I've, I've had this sermon written for a long time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to end up with baptisms today. Um, and some of you are going like, well, that's not why I'm here. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. You have no idea. Every, every time we come in, I had no idea. This, I, I got stuck in traffic. I was looking for Walmart. Here I am, you know, and, and you're going to get baptized. And some of you are going, well, I didn't wear any, what am I going to, what you're wearing, what you're going to get baptized in. Well, it's cold outside. Here's what I say all the time. If you catch a cold and die, you go to heaven. It's all good. <laughs> Really, really, really glad that, that you are here. Hey, let's give a shout out to our brothers down at Lyman Prison who are listening in right now. Do I ever want to forget about them? So good. Hey, we're going to jump into this, um, and then we're going to have baptism at, at the end. If you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6 and also 1 Peter chapter 3. So Genesis 6 is in the front of the Bible. Uh, 1 Peter is in the back of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, at all of our campuses, we have Bibles in the, in the back of all of our auditoriums. They are there for you to take home. The other thing today, you're going to want something to write with. And you can say, well, I'm not that kind of person. Well, today you are, because you're going to want to go, I want to remember that. And I've prayed about it. God is fine with us writing in his book, right? At school, you couldn't do that, but this one, it's yours, so you're going to want to write some stuff in, in, in the margins, okay? So we are in week three of a series that we're calling Rebellion, where we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and just a quick review, and, I'll, and again, I'm going to be honest with you, if you weren't here last weekend, or you weren't able to listen online, a whole bunch of this is going to feel like it's going to go over your head. You're going to sit in here at one of the campuses, and you're going to go like, like, what is he talking about? That's not in the Bible, which is kind of the sub-theme of the whole series, Right? Here's what I mean by that. We have been looking over the last couple of months at some very familiar stories and some unfamiliar stories that have been in our Bible since it was written thousands of years ago. And somehow, over time, here's what we do. We've either imposed our own thoughts on them or the tradition we grew up in or stuff we heard about these stories in the past, and we kind of read them through that filter, which for some of us, um, with no context as for what's going on with the guy who wrote it or the people that it was written to, we miss the real point. Or worse yet, we read the Bible and we get it wrong. Like God's going like, I didn't say that. And for other parts of the Bible, like the, the verses we looked at last week, we have no idea what it means or what we think it's talking about. Or, or we'll read something and go, that is so strange. That is so weird. That is out of the realm of my idea of possibility that you just skip over it and then you just move on to something that's easier to read and understand. So just because today is so important, I want to go back and I want to review a little bit over the last couple of weeks so we're all on the, same, on, the, on the same page. Okay, so in week one, two weeks ago, we looked at rebellion number one back in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they used their free will to disobey God. That's the definition of sin. I know what God wants. I'm going to do something different. And they chose to eat the forbidden fruit because they did not believe that God was telling them the truth. God said, it'll kill you. I don't believe it'll kill me. I'm going to do it anyway. So just as God said back then, he said, the wage of sin is death and separation from God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, separated from God, and their bodies would eventually die. But in the same breath, God promised them that he would not abandon them, he would not give up on them, and he already had a plan in place to restore them back into life and into his presence through a coming Messiah, which we can now look back and go, that's going to be Jesus, right? It'll be Jesus who will defeat death, remove condemnation, remove separation from God by paying the wage of sin by his death on the cross and and his burial, defeating death through his resurrection. Because of what Jesus did, death is defeated. We don't have to worry about that. Last week in rebellion number two, oh, I got an amen section. Here we go, right? So in rebellion number two, part of God's counsel, divine counsel, which I never heard of them growing up. But it's right there in your Bible, the divine council called the sons of God. They rebel against God. They take on the form of men. They come down to this place called Mount Hermon. It's in northern Israel. It's very important even today. 
Uh, we're gonna look at that in two weeks, so you wanna come back for that, all right? They, they take on the, the form of men and have sex with the attractive, made in the image of God, daughters of, of men. They have giant-sized children called the Nephilim, all right, who are half people, half human, half demonic, who teach mankind to destroy themselves more efficiently. This is what we studied last week. Through, through astrology, through idolatry, through sexual immorality, through war, through murder, through violence, and through, through, through drug abuse. Mankind, at least this speaking for me, I already have a bent towards using my free will to rebel against God. But in Genesis chapter six, the sons of God and the Nephilim kind of put depravity on steroids. We ended up with this verse. We're in Genesis chapter six, verse five. This is where we ended last week. Kind of the state that we left it in. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, mankind, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again, well, most of us, if you've been to church at all, you would jump right to this you know, question of like, why did Jesus have to come and die on a cross? Most of us would point to that first rebellion in the Garden of Eden, the fall of mankind, right? And, and you'd be right, but the people who wrote the Bible and the people who it was written to would have said, yeah, absolutely, Genesis 3, but the Messiah is gonna have to fix some other stuff as well, such as the mess mankind is in. And in Genesis chapter six, the depravity of man and his heart and his mind are set on evil. The Messiah is not just gonna have to fix mankind's conduct. You need to act better. He's gonna have to change our hearts and our minds, not just our behavior. Again, we can look back and see how Jesus did that by promising that after his death, burial, and resurrection, he says, now I'm gonna return to the Father and then I will send the Holy Spirit who from the inside out would begin to conform us into the image of Jesus. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection solve our death problem, our condemnation and separation problem. Jesus' ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit is how God's gonna fix our hearts and our minds. If you're, if you're new to Flatirons, the way we take notes here is we get out our, 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 our cameras or our phones and we take pictures of the screen because if you don't misquote me online, I know who you are. I think you said this. Shut up, I didn't. Take a picture, all right? So how about this? Jesus' death and resurrection breaks our chains and sets us free, right? Jesus' spirit teaches us and leads us into how it looks to live with God in freedom. We're free. He's going to teach us how to live like free, free people. But that's going to happen way down the road. The, the cross and all that's going to happen for several centuries, right? In the meantime, mankind, where we left off last week, is figuratively going down the toilet, and God needs to step in and intervene before these sons of God have their way and destroy all God's image bearers. So God's going to get involved. Genesis chapter 6, let's go back to verse 5, and we'll pick up there again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if you look at this, uh, if you have your Bible and something to write with, there's underlined words in there. You're going you're gonna to want to underline this because later you're going to go like, now, what did he say? Okay, Because if you get this wrong, you just get a big part of the Bible wrong. It says this, and the Lord, and this is important, regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, grieved God to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. Here it is. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now, that sounds kind of weird. Let me, I want to point out a few things, or we're going to get a really kind of skewed ver, like view of the Bible, okay? First, what happens in Eden in Genesis 3, and what happens on Mount Hermon in Genesis 6 with the sons of God and the daughters of men, I just want you to know, that did not catch God by surprise. He wasn't like looking at all this and go, whoa, I did not see that coming. I had no idea they were going to do that. That's horrible, right? No, he knew. He knew. Later in the New Testament, we read that Jesus was chosen to fix the sin problem of mankind before there was mankind. 
before we were even created. So somehow, and I'm not saying that God predestined man or those sons of God to rebel against him, but somehow he did have foreknowledge of it and he had a plan in place to fix our problem before we even had a problem. Second, when you read that, the, the, that God regretted something or he was sorry that he had made mankind, you can't project our definition onto those words, onto that text, because to do that would, would read like this. God made a mistake and now he had to fix what he should have never done in the first place. And that's not it. See, in the Hebrew, like in this context, in, in this story, to regret something or to be sorry for something, it's not an apology as much as this, right? Even though I knew it would happen, it grieves me and saddens me to watch it happen. And it grieves me and saddens me because I know what comes next. God's looking at this, right? And the unavoidable suffering and consequences that will be attached to the free will decisions that my image bearers have made. And you, you understand this. P parents, you get this. Right? If, you're a, if you're a coach or you're a boss or you're a supervisor, you understand when you have to deliver bad news or have to enforce the consequences of someone's bad decision or wrong behavior, here's what's going on in the back of your mind. I know what's about to happen in their life, and it's going to be painful. It's going to be confusing. They're going to get angry. They're going to have fear. They're not going to understand. And that's what God's doing right there, right? And I know it sounds cliche, but sometimes it really does hurt you more than the person that you have to deliver the consequences to. It breaks your heart, and that's what's going on with God in this scene. Even though he has foreknowledge of this, as it's happening and as he sees people that he created and loves and he had a plan for them and they rebelled against it, now they're going to be hurt by the consequences. His heart is broken. The Bible says it grieved. Think about this. It grieved God to his heart by what he's seen. And he knows it's going to get worse before it gets better. By the way, sometimes when God looks at our life, I think he feels the same thing. Man, I got a plan for your life. Oh, don't do. Oh, you did it. Your life's going to suck for a while. It's going to be really, really, really hard. And, it, and it, it grieves my heart. The third thing is, when the text says that God says, I'll destroy all mankind, we know he can't be referring to literally all mankind. Sometimes all means all. But here it's like, it, it can't mean all because all mankind would mean this. His words to Eve, that out of her offspring would come the one who would defeat Satan, it wouldn't happen. It'd be a lie. So if, if all mankind is destroyed, there's no offspring. And there's no Messiah. So when God says all mankind, he's referring to all mankind whose minds and hearts are continually turned towards evil. And he's gonna, he's gonna destroy it. But look at this next verse, because God always has, has a plan. Look at the next verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And what happens in the next two and a half chapters, you probably learned it about it as a kid, all right? We're not going to break it down today, but the next few verses there cover the next 120 years, all right? There's a warning. Hey, there's a coming flood. Noah preaches for 120 years, and nobody listens. Can you imagine that? It's like, hey, he's been preaching for 120 years. Nobody came forward. It's like, you get fired in this world. It's like, but you're, you're a bad preacher, right? So, but, but anyway, we find God's instructions. Like, I want you to build the ark, this big, this wide, this long, whatever, uh, to save Noah and his family and the animals on the earth. 
Then you have the actual flood and then the receding of the waters and Noah and his family coming out of the ark in chapter nine. Let's skip ahead to chapter nine. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should be familiar. And for your lifeblood, so from now on, I'm gonna talk about all your descendants, Noah. I will require a reckoning. It means accountability. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And here's the law. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And what God is saying there, right, before the flood, death and murder and revenge were out of control. In one case, back in, I think, chapter four or five, uh, this one man says, a guy tried to kill me, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill 77 of his family. It was out of control. It was a blood feud, right? With no accountability. And what God enacts here, right, that he says, now after the flood, murder and, and, and destruction have to be given a reckoning. And self-destruction has to be kept under some level of control. There has to be accountability. So here, God is the one who enacts the death penalty. Not simply to execute the offender who shed the blood of one of God's image bearers, get this, but to limit it to just one execution instead of ongoing blood feuds and wars. And I've been to places on this planet Great grandpa killed somebody else's uncle and then they came and they killed a village and then they came and they killed a kid. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. God says there has to be, there has to be a stop sign there. And then again, God gives Noah and his family the same commandment that he gave Adam and Eve back in chapters two and three. And you, Noah, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In other words, and I was gonna, this is what I was gonna name the sermon today, wash, rinse, and repeat right? Let's start again, okay? Spread out and take Eden to the whole earth. Let's try it again. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Just nod your head, right? right, right okay. Because as weird as some of us look at it, going, that's just a crazy story, ark, and a bunch of animals being saved from catastrophe, okay? I, I get it. It is weird, right? It's about to get weirder. So if you have your Bible, you're in the front of the Bible, I want you to turn almost all the way to the end of the Bible to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, this is one of those passages I'm 61. I've been going to church all my life. I was in the womb. My mom played the organ at church. I mean, I am churched as you can be. Uh, I've never heard in all my years of going to church that what we're going to talk on today preached in any church I've been a part of. I, I have a college degree in Bible, and I, I wasn't taught this. Why? I mean, I, I kind of understand it. What we're going to see is that Peter, the author of what we're going to look at, makes a connection. This is so great, right? Between, he's going to put it all together. The sons of God having sex with the daughters of men back in Genesis 6, the spiritual demons that resulted from those rebellions, Noah and the flood, and then Jesus descending to preach to the dead spirits in the underworld. Peter, Peter makes a connection between all of that and what we're going to do here in about 20 minutes. Baptism. He says it's all connected. But in order to do that, to understand how Peter lands where we're going to look at, we have to understand that Peter, the author, is tapping into something outside of the Bible, a, a worldview of non-biblical Jewish literature. In particular, there's this one book called the book of First Enoch. We now have a copy of it because they, they discovered uh, copies of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls just a few decades back. Okay, again, First Enoch is not the inspired word of God. It's not equal to the Bible. But Peter read it. And he believed it, and he quoted from it several times in his writings. So again, if you have your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. And this is just a big aha moment, okay? We have to understand the world that these people lived in. And I've said this many, many times. The Bible was written for us. It wasn't written to us. It was written to people who lived in a culture going, we read those books, and we read that culture, and this goes on in our town and all that. We have to go back and go, how did they see this? 
okay? So Peter's reading all kinds of books, and he has the inspired word of God coming to him. So as you're finding 1 Peter, let me just remind you, we studied through 1 Peter uh, about a year ago. If I, could, if I could say the whole theme of the book of 1 Peter, if I could kind of reduce that down to one word, remember what it would be? Hope. Hope. The whole book of 1 Peter is about hope. Here's what Peter writes. I know your life is hard. I know that you feel like you're living in a world where you don't belong. You're like an exile, right? I know how that feels. I know that you're suffering. I know that life is not fair. I know that you're being persecuted. I know that your bodies are getting sick and dying. Here's what I'm telling you. Don't give up. That's all. If you ever need some encouragement, read 1 Peter. Every, he has everything in this world that everybody is chasing, it's temporary and it fades away. But you have a hope. You have a future. You have a treasure that will never fade away. So I'm just telling you, have hope. Don't give up. You're not alone. So that's what the first part of uh, the first couple of chapters are about. But here's where it gets weird. Like Peter takes everything he knows about the Bible, things from all over the Bible, and it's like he takes all these concepts, throws them in a blender, hits the button, and verse 18 comes out. It's just like, What? Like, look, look at this. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in, in the spirit. Now, most of us can hang with that. You've been to church more than a few times. We cover it all the time. Jesus suffered and died for our sins to bring us back to God. Jesus beat sin and death by his death on the cross and his resurrection. We are alive. But then now Peter picks up right in the next verse here. What did Jesus do during those three days when he was dead? You ever wonder that? What did Jesus do during those three days when he was, what was dead? Did he go in a coma? Was he, was he just dead and gone? No, here's what he did. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah's family, were brought safely through the waters. What Peter is talking about is here, he can only refer to one event angels and flood, right? And that's Genesis 6, 7, and 8. The sons of God having sex with the daughters of men leading to the flood, where in his other letter, Peter says, you want me to tell you what went on there? Look at this. Don't look there, but 2 Peter chapter 2 says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, back in Genesis 6, but cast them into, and your version might say hell, it should be Tartarus, and that's important, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's what happened to those sons of God. And Jude, a little tiny, right before Revelation, here's how he says it. Uh, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, came down, had sex with these women, right? Uh, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So apparently, okay, for the 120 years while the ark was being built, God was waiting patiently while Noah unsuccessfully pre preached to people, you gotta turn back to God, because the flood's on the way and nobody listened, nobody responded. So while the flood was sent to cleanse the earth of man's unrighteousness, God also was cleaning house in the spiritual realm by taking the sons of God who rebelled against him and tried to destroy mankind by condemning them in a spiritual prison until the final judgment. That's what it just said. Now, I wanna take a big time out here, okay? I wanna be really, really clear because if some of you are gonna go pick up your kids and go, we're not going back there. I wanna be really, really clear. The number one value here at Flatirons we have, like, these are important, right? The number one here is, we call it biblical authority, right? So please hear me. We are not becoming the church that follows the Bible and this old, old book they found in a cave called First Enoch. We're not, we're not gonna be that church. Here's what we're doing. We are digging into the cultural context and literature and the worldview that informed the Bible authors. In this case, Peter and Jude, because the angels being chained in Tartarus, right? It's not in the Bible, 
It's not in the book of Genesis back when they're talking about this. So apparently they read the book of first Enoch and they believed it enough for them to quote directly from that, that book, what happened to the sons of God at the time of the flood. So we're going to do something we've never done before. I don't know if we'll ever do it again. Depending on your emails, all right? Um, we're, we're going to take a look at the book of first Enoch, which is not the Bible. It's not inspired. And what Peter and Jude had studied and believed enough to make it part of what we now refer to as the inspired word of God. And it's going to sound crazy, but you're getting used to it. There's some crazy stuff in this Bible. All right. So first Enoch chapter six, uh, chapter six through 15 describes, we're not going to look at it right yet, but how the, the sons of God, but in, in the book of first Enoch, they're called the watchers. Okay, in the book of Daniel, they're called the watchers as well. They committed the offense of Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. They were imprisoned under the earth in the underworld for what they had done, Tartarus. The watchers appeal their sentence and they ask a prophet that you find back in Genesis, his name's Enoch, will you go in front of God and intercede for us? So we're gonna look at Enoch chapter six, verse four. If you brought your copy with you, you can turn there now, all right? But this is, this is Enoch talking, okay? All right, they, the watchers, or the rebellious sons of God, they asked that I, Enoch, write a memorandum of petition for them that they might have forgiveness and that I might write the memorandum of petition for them in the presence of the Lord of heaven. So Enoch says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try it, right? He takes the petition, the request for forgiveness. He takes that to God, and God sent back the response, also by way of Enoch, to the imprisoned spirits and announced to them, denied here are some excerpts from First Enoch chapter 13. Now it's God speaking here. And Enoch, go and say to Azazel, that's the, the, the chief son of God, right? There, you will have no peace. A great sentence has gone forth against you to bind you. You will have no relief or petition because of the unrighteous deeds that you have revealed because of all the godless deeds and the unrighteousness and the sin that you revealed to men. And then I went and spoke to all of them, the spirits in prison, together, and they were all afraid and trembling and fear seized them. First Enoch goes on to say that this prison, uh, you're going to stay here until the end of days. And that's language that refers to the end times in the book of Revelation. The prison that Enoch's talking about here is the same prison that, according to Peter, Jesus descended and, and preached to the imprisoned son of God. They're the same. See, Peter saw a direct, and I'm going to tie this into baptism. You have no idea, but don't leave early, all right? Peter saw a direct connection between the events of Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and the events of Enoch's intercession from first Enoch and what happened back then. He says all of that is just like the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter considered these events in Genesis 6 and Enoch to be types or precursors of something that's going to happen in the New Testament. What is that? Next verse. Baptism. What? Baptism, which corresponds to this, everything we just talked about. It now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So how in the world does Peter make a connection between the rebellion and imprisonment of the sons of God in Genesis 6 with Enoch, with God saving Noah and his family through the flood? How does he connect that to baptism and what Jesus did through his death, burial, and descent to, to preach to the spirits in heaven and in, in prison? And then his ascent to heaven, putting the entire spiritual realm under his authority. How does he connect all those dots to baptism? 
Okay, we're gonna nerd out. From, from some of you going, oh, you already, you already nerded out, Jim. All right, but we're gonna nerd out even more. Okay, so all you like English majors and literature majors, you're gonna love this. All right, so in the Bible we have these literary devices called types. Types. Sometimes they're called shadows. All right, a type is a nonverbal prophecy or foreshadowing of something to come. So you read through the Bible. Sometimes a prophet would get a, a message from God and he'd just say it. He'd speak a prophecy. This is going to happen. But sometimes he would, he would do something or something would happen in the world. And while it meant one thing in the moment, it was actually a picture of or a type of something yet to come. And I'll give you a great example of this. All right. When the Jews were about to leave Egypt, remember they were enslaved in Egypt. Uh, the, 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 God sent these 10 plagues. The 10th plague was, you remember what this was? The death of the firstborn. Remember that? In order to be saved from death, a person, a Jewish person, took a lamb and put the blood of a lamb on the wooden doorframe of their house, and the angel of death passed over their house. The Jews still celebrate Passover every year. Looking back on the night that he was arrested, Jesus is, is, is eating the Passover meal, and he, and, he, and, he, and he connects the Passover celebration to himself, what he's going to do tomorrow. Right? Saying that that was a type or a foreshadowing of what I'm going to do tomorrow on a cross. And death and condemnation will pass over us because we're covered in the blood of the Lamb. Follow me? Uh, here's another one. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that Adam in the garden is a precursor or a type of Jesus. Adam was the first human son of God. And by that one man, Adam, sin was brought into the world. And by Adam, death reigned. Jesus was, in this case, the anti-type the unique son of God, and by that one man, Jesus, sin was taken out of the world and grace was freely given, and by him, all who believe in him are made alive. So what we have today is that just like Jesus was the second Adam for Paul, Jesus is also the second Enoch for Peter. Enoch descended into the imprisoned fallen angels to announce their doom. And First Peter has Jesus descending into the same spirits in prison, the fallen angels to tell them, you're still defeated despite my crucifixion. That, I had to be a good moment. I mean, I make up stories in my head. I'm, this is all history, I, but this is what I do. I'm on meds, but it's not working. So I, I said, I read the Bible. I wonder what it'd be like. Like, like, so Jesus dies, so he goes to the place of the dead. Jesus shows up in prison there, and the sons of God recognize him, and I bet they mocked him. Ha ha, see, you're just like us. You lost too. And Jesus responds, oh no, I'm not staying. I just came to tell you that when my father sent you here, that's not changing. You're staying, you lose, I win. And then he rose from the dead, right? And they're like, hey. And then the next verse ends with Jesus risen from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, above all angels, above all authorities and powers, which includes these fallen, imprisoned sons of God, which in Revelation, he just kicks tail. And again, so how does this relate to baptism? How is baptism tied into the, the logic or the typology of everything we've been talking about? Let's look at it one more time. Get your pencils out, right? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from your body. So we're not just getting a bath up here, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple words there I want you to consider, right? The word most often translated appeal in verse 21, is best understood, this is gonna just blow your mind, right? A better translation would be pledge, as in a pledge to God. Likewise, the word conscious there does not refer to that inner voice in your head or in your heart saying this is right and this is wrong. That's what it means in other places. But the word here refers to an attitude or decision that reflects one's loyalty. So how does this help us understand the passage and baptism? 
the act of baptism is not what produces salvation. This water will not save you. It saves in that it first involves or reflects a heart decision, a pledge of loyalty to the risen Savior. And in other words, how about this? Baptism in New Testament theology is a loyalty oath, a public declaration of who is on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between good and evil. But it's also... In addition to that, it's a visual. We're all going to watch this happen. It's a visceral. We're going to experience. It's a reminder to, to, the, to the demonic realm, to, to the defeated fallen angels. How about this? Every baptism is a reiteration of the doom of the spiritual enemies in the wake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Every time somebody gets baptized, it's a big, you lost. You lost Satan. You lost another one. Early Christians understood the typology of this passage and it's linked back to the fallen angels. Early baptism, like formulas, like what you say when you get baptized, included a renunciation of Satan and his angels for what we're talking about. See, when I was baptized when I was eight years old, and in the past, when a person has been baptized here at Flatirons, here's what we're going to ask you to do. We want you to repeat this if you believe it. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. But the early Christians, when the church first started, they said that but they continued on, right? And I renounce all other allegiances to Satan or anything that is not of Jesus. I turned my back on that. See, I think this is where modern day Christians, us, we've lost something. See, when we get baptized, when I got baptized, we do it for rebellion number one. I sinned against God. I made some mistakes. I'm really sorry for it. I need forgiveness. And I believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life that that makes forgiveness and abundant life available. So we got baptized because we're really sorry about our past. And I hope that now that I've done this, maybe I'm forgiven. We want to go to heaven when we die instead of hell. And hopefully between now and then, our funeral will feel less guilt and shame. The problem is, this is going to explain a lot. The problem is we claim to give our life to Jesus from now on, right? But for many of us, nothing changed because we never let go of the other things that were pulling us away from Jesus that had our loyalties and our allegiances, which by definition is anti-Jesus or it's evil. And it's because we are rooted in Satan's continual lie that he can do for us or give us something apart from or without Jesus that only Jesus can do. We're trying to hold on to both. But baptism was meant to be an act, not of I'm just really sorry about my past, but a declaration of allegiance to Jesus from now on and a statement to the demonic realm, I am done with you. You have no hold on me. I pick a side and I'm on the Lord's side. Isn't there power in that statement? I swear allegiance to Jesus and renounce Satan's hold on me. That's got power in there, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a declaration. Baptism is an act of spiritual warfare. Jesus won, Satan lost, all right? Baptism is moving from one space, of one kingdom into another one. That's why when you're baptized in a few minutes, you're not just baptized in the name of, but the better translation is into the name of into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm entering into something new, and I'm leaving something old behind. I'm moving into sacred space. I'm moving, in, I'm, I'm moving back into Eden. I'm moving into a, a, a life inside the kingdom of God with God. Baptism is a, a pledge of loyalty and renounces all other allegiances. This just works in life, too. Here's a great analogy. It's just obvious. I guarantee, this might explain a lot in your life, that if you get married, your marriage will be empty, horrible, no intimacy, and very short-lived if you get married and you continue to sleep with your old boyfriend or girlfriend. It won't work. So we're going, oh... It's not open. It's not cool. It's not progressive. It is a disaster. It's a joke. But a lot of us, we did the same thing. We became a Christian. We said, I believe in Jesus. and I want him to save me. But we kept on sleeping with the devil, right? That's why your walk with Jesus has been so empty and horrible. And it feels like it's on the edge of breakup. I think Jesus and I are going to get a divorce. Here's why you have a foot in both worlds and it doesn't work. 
You're forgiven. And I'm certainly not saying that you're not going to make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Only God is perfect. But you cannot learn to live free and overcome the old ways of your past and thinking without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot serve two masters. You must repent. You must renounce any allegiances that compete with that of Jesus Christ as your Lord, Savior, and Master. And if you aren't willing to do this, write this down. Don't get baptized today. You are wasting your time. It's a package deal. Jesus must be Savior and Lord King. So you're saved by faith in Jesus alone, but that involves what Jesus says, repentance. You gotta change your mind and your direction and you gotta follow him. You cannot claim to be saved and not follow him. It just doesn't work. So what does, all have, what does this have to do with you? You need to get baptized. That's why God drove you in here today. I have been, he's been chasing you and pursuing you, saying, pick a side. And now to today's day, what's that look like? Well, at the very first church service ever, Back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached the gospel for the first time, the message of Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he did. This is what was done to him. And he rose from the dead. And the people heard that. Thousands of people heard that. And they responded. It says, they cried out, what must we do to be saved? You know what they didn't cry out? What must we do to feel better about ourselves? What must we do to feel less guilty about our past? What do we need to do to become the best version of ourselves? No, what do we need to do in order to be saved, to be changed, to be transformed? And Jesus replied, oh, here's the answer. Repent and be baptized in faith. Believe and put your trust in who Jesus is, what he has done for you, and then swear allegiance to him and renounce anything that you have allied yourself, allied yourself with that is not in line with Jesus. And once that happens, the Holy Spirit will start working on the inside and change anything that needs to be changed. See, baptism has to become so much more than from now on, I'm gonna try to be a better person, right? No, baptism is a confession that I can't be a better person without Jesus in my life. His forgiveness and his spirit. Otherwise, I'm just done, all right? Baptism is this. I'm picking a side because I can't, I can't be on two sides anymore. I can't serve two masters anymore. Therefore, I here declare that by my baptism, I'm on the side of Jesus. And from now on, all right, he alone is my Lord, Savior, and King. And let this baptism be a declaration to the demonic realm. I am done with you. I'm done with all the false gods and anything I've aligned myself with in the past, wrongfully hoping they could do for me what I can only get from Jesus. Today, your baptism means this. I choose Jesus, and the rest can go to hell. Right? That's just true. Because that's where it belongs. So some of you are going, well, maybe I'm getting baptized. I know. I know. So what's going through your head right now? See, when I, when I, when I, I'm not saying your old baptism didn't count. I'm not, say, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying it was pretty empty. You know, I got baptized because somebody said, told a really, really sad story at church and played a sad song, and I went forward or I'm going to go to hell. That's, that was my motivation. And that, that's okay. That's a first step. It's more than that, isn't it? You know, statistics say this. Is that, I'm flat on, I've been around it for almost 18 years, right? About half of us grew up Catholic. We married a Lutheran, like, I'm not going to yours, I'm not going to yours, and they came here. And so, some version of that, right? Um, let me just talk to all the, 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 the people that grew up Catholic. Hey, your baptism was awesome as a child, but it was more of a pledge of a good conscience by your parents, right? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna point my kid towards Jesus, right? But a day comes when you have to stand on the shoulders of what they planted in you, and you have to take ownership of your faith. I declare that he's my king. Thank you, mom. Thank you, grandma. But it's now my choice and my decision. I choose him as my king, and nobody can do that instead of me. I have to do that. And maybe today's your day to do that. And I know this, nobody can renounce your past except you. So today, here's what you're gonna renounce. 
listen, I'd like to not be addicted anymore, but you know, in order to do that, I gotta renounce the demon that said I could find it in a bottle. Okay, the reason that you keep on having marriage problems is you believe this demonic force that says you can find happiness in the wrong bed. And you can't, and you now know that's a lie because you've lost so much. But, but, but those are behaviors, but there is a force, an evil force behind that that you've actually turned your attention to, and you're gonna repent of that and go, I'm, I'm gonna look at Jesus now. Jesus is going to define my marriage, and Jesus is going to define my sobriety. Jesus is going to define every, every aspect of my life. And let my baptism from, this, from, from now on say, I belong to Jesus. And I walk away from all the evil. And that's going to be hard. That's why Jesus is going to give you his Holy Spirit. He's going to come and live inside you. And today's a new day. Today's your day. Now is your time. And all of our campuses, let's stand up. I'm going to, last night I said, I'm going to sing. And I was like, no, people will not come get baptized. They'll run, all right? I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, it's, it's go time at all of our campuses. Campuses are going to tell you, your campus pastor is going to tell you where, where, which way to go. And here at Lafayette, you just come down to the back corners back here. They, they'll walk you through everything. Uh, we have extra t-shirts. We have towels. We have all of that, all right? And again, if you go to a restaurant and you have brunch after this, something like that, uh, people are going to go like, why are you all wet? Are you, you want to know? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. Well, what's that mean? Well, we can make it to the 11 o'clock service if you want to get out of here. That's what it means, right? So Father God, in this moment, I just believe that, just like we've been saying, there's just no name like you. There's no one that saves like you. There's no one that rescues like you. None can heal us like you do. None can save us. None can fix us. None can love us. None can forgive us. None can give us the strength that your spirit can give. So we turn our back on everything that we thought could deliver, and we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We're baptized into your name, into your kingdom, into your family. And from now on, we call you, you're our brother. God, you're our father. And we're all part of your family. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. In that wonderful name, I pray, amen. Let's go.